Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight through the righteousness that is given to us only through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Post tenebres lux. After darkness, light. It's a, a phrase that was popularized almost as a motto or a slogan during the Reformation. After darkness, light. But today it serves us as a good description for uh, this period of time that we're in. Uh, this movement between the seasons of Advent and Christmas. Because Advent is a season of preparation. It's a season of anticipation. It, it begins with a darkness, but a darkness tinged with hope. Just a hint of hope. And throughout the season, that hope blossoms and it grows. It's like the eager anticipation of the sunrise just before the dawn in the darkest part of the night. That season leads us to Christmas. And in Christmas, in the birth of Christ, that hope that began in the beginning of Advent crests over the horizon. And the light that shines forth begins to chase away that darkness. Our hopes find their answer in Christ and Christmas. And in that movement, the inky blackness of the night gets washed away as the reddish-orange-yellow rays of the sun come up slowly, revealing the light. As we participate in these rhythms of worship and devotion that are common to these seasons, you may not know this, but it is embedding you in the gospel story. And as it embeds us all within that story, it trains us in how to live in the in-between. Do you guys know what I mean by the in-between? It's, it's that time that is between the birth of Christ and his return. A time where that light, the light of Christmas, has broken into history. It is here. And yet, there is a darkness that still lingers. The light is here, but the darkness rages against the dawn. If Matthew 2, 1 through 12, is that dawning light of Christmas and the birth of Christ, our gospel passage for today, it shows us that lingering, raging darkness. Because in Matthew 2, 13 through 23, Matthew records for us three events from the infancy of Christ, and they are filled with darkness and despair. Merry Christmas. <laughs>
those three events. We, in, in those three events, we have the Holy Family's flight into Egypt. We have Herod's slaughter of the innocents. And then we have the Holy Family's intrepid return to Judea. Yet, after darkness, light. Because despite how dark things may seem in that moment, there is a profound hope that is in this passage for all of us. God is in control, and he is at work to dispel that darkness, to bring hope out of the horror, and to tr transform all of our despair into rejoicing. The key to seeing this hope in our passage for today comes in understanding how Jesus fulfills the prophecies that Matthew says are fulfilled in each of the events. Now, uh, full disclosure, there are three events and three prophecies. Today, I'm only going to focus on the first two. On the first two. In quoting these prophecies, in, in showing us their fulfillment in Christ, here's, here's what I think Matthew wants to show us. He wants to show us that Jesus is the greater Moses who leads God's people in the greater Exodus and establishes a greater covenant. Greater Moses, greater Exodus, greater covenant. Now, I, you're maybe sitting there and saying, those words don't even appear in the text. How do we get there? Um, well, glad you asked, first of all. Thanks. Uh, let's see. Let's see. First, I want to look at how Matthew shows us that Jesus is the greater Moses who leads a greater exodus. And we're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament. So uh, let's go. Matthew tells us that the Holy Family's flight into Egypt sets up the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Uh, in the text, it's out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea 11.1. 1. Uh, and, and this is interesting because M Matthew doesn't quote that whole verse. He quotes the last bit of it. So let's, let's get back into the context of that verse, and, and I'll read the whole thing. And, and then we'll take it from there. Hosea writes, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It's interesting. Because Hosea isn't looking forward in time. He's looking back. And he is looking back particularly to the time of Israel in the Egyptian captivity and their rescue through the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. So what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? Well, let me give you the point first and then we'll, we'll work our way back. The, the point that we need to understand is that all of redemptive history from the beginning until the nativity, all redemptive history points forward to Jesus. 
Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Israel's story, particularly God's plan of redemption as it unfolded in Israel's story. Consider our passage today and how the Holy Family's flight into Egypt under duress recalls another period of time when another Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel, was brought into Egypt. That time, he was brought into Egypt, betrayed by his brothers, bound and led by human traffickers. Did it not seem in that moment, as Joseph was being led away, that God's plan for redemption was going to fail? But we, with the hindsight of Holy Scripture, know that it says God was orchestrating those events behind the scene um, in order to deliver his holy family of the patriarchs. His son, Israel. Through what happened to Joseph and being brought into Egypt, the whole family of the Hebrews was saved from a devastating family, famine that wiped everything out. God orchestrated those events in order to save his people. And indeed, the Hebrews flourished and multiplied throughout Egypt in the generations that followed. In fact, they flourished so much that when a new pharaoh raised, rose to power, he was afraid, afraid that they would lead a revolt against him. And so, drunk on anger and paranoia, he enslaved and he brutalized the Hebrews. And eventually he commanded that the murder of every male child, he commanded the murder of every male child born to the Hebrew women. Sound familiar? our passage today. Here, God's plan for redemption appeared to be under threat yet again, but out of the horror of Pharaoh's slaughter, a note of hope rang out in the birth of Moses. Moses should have been murdered that day. But <clears throat> he was saved by God's providence through the quick thinking and the actions that his family took. In that same providence, God would, uh, Moses would grow up, and eventually God would call him to be the leader of his rescue efforts. He was going to be the one to deliver God's people out of their Egyptian captivity and slavery. And I'm skipping some of the detail of the story here, but, but when he calls Moses to go, one of the ways that he assures him is by saying, go, for all those seeking your life are dead. Do you see the parallels? Jesus, God's son, enters Egypt, led by Joseph. Herod, 
rather than acting as the king of Israel like he should, a man who is moved to rule and reign like David, a man after God's own heart, Herod is a new pharaoh. Herod, the king of the Jews, is Israel's oppressor. And when it comes time for the Holy Family's return, the angel assures Joseph, go, for those seeking the child's life are dead. God's plan for redemption was under threat yet again. But God was orchestrating all of history, all of history to reveal in that moment that Jesus was his promised Messiah. He is the hope. He is the greater Moses who would lead a greater Exodus. Now, these parallels are fun and it's really interesting to dive into. Um, but if this is true, like it raises some questions, right? Why was there a need for a greater Moses? What's all this about a greater Exodus? Why harp on these points? Answer, because as great as Moses and the Exodus were, they could only rescue the Hebrews from their physical captivity. They had no power whatsoever to save them from their spiritual slavery, their slavery to sin and judgment and condemnation. This limitation becomes apparent as God establishes a covenant with his people after bringing them out of Egypt. He establishes a covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. And in this covenant, God promised blessings for their obedience. But what else? Curses if they were to disobey. Punishment for their idolatry. God warned that if they continued in idolatry and disobedience, he would reverse the exodus. He would send the Israelites back into captivity. And Israel repeatedly broke this covenant. They repeatedly disobeyed. Again and again, they fell back into idolatry. But in God's graciousness, he would send prophet after prophet to warn them and call them to repentance, calls that they ignored for centuries. And it was centuries before this covenantal punishment came to pass. But come to pass, it would. And that brings us to Matthew's second prophecy, Jeremiah 31.15. Because Jeremiah was a prophet who witnessed this covenantal curse, this punishment for idolatry, come to pass. He wrote Jeremiah 31.15 as he watched Babylon invade Israel 
destroy their temple and take the Israelites back into captivity and slavery. And in watching this, he writes, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In seeing his people being taken back into captivity, back into slavery, Isaiah calls forth Rachel, Joseph's mother, as a testimony and as an embodiment of a profound grief, a weeping, and a lament. Because once again, it seems like God's plan of redemption is going to fail. They blew it again. Yet, even here, even in the horror of exile and being taken back into captivity, a note of hope rings out. Exile would not last forever. Jeremiah 31, 15, again, but now in context with verses 16 and 17, the prophet writes, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. Your children shall come back to their own country. What does this sound like? Sounds like a new exodus. A return. A coming back from captivity and into the land. Rachel weeps as Israel is taken into exile, but there is hope for your future, he says. And not only is it a new exodus, but just like the first exodus, this one comes with a new covenant. And it is a greater covenant. And we see this promise just 19 verses later in the same chapter of Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, in the old covenant, after the first exodus, God wrote his law on stone tablets as a way of uh, revealing our condemnation for our sin, that we are guilty before him. And in doing so, he revealed our need for a savior. But in the covenant established by Jesus, the greater covenant, 
God wrote his law on our hearts. Not to condemn us, but that through the Holy Spirit, he would transform those hearts. That he would transform our uh, desires and our affections. And he would empower us to love God and love neighbor, just as the law taught. As Paul writes in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That is, there is forgiveness for those of us who are united to Christ by faith and grafted into his church through baptism. The old covenant can only make us aware of our condemnation. The new and the greater covenant not only reveals the Savior we need, Jesus of Nazareth, but it unites us to Jesus in such a way that he doesn't only forgive us for our cleanse, he actually washes us clean from them. He cleanses us. Just like Jeremiah, speaking of this new covenant, Ezekiel talks about it as well. And he says, uh, well, God says through him, I should say, I will take you from the nations. They're already in exile, right? It's another captivity. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you. A new spirit I will put within you. I will remove from your body your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave your ancestors. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. A greater exodus, a greater covenant, led by a greater Moses. Like so many other times, our passage today shows us a time when God's plan of redemption seemed to come under threat again. The darkness tried to swallow up the infant Messiah, and in so doing, it left behind a trail of the bodies of Bethlehem's infants. But as horrifying as this event is, it's not unique to human history, is it? We go out of our way in being horrific. It's what we're best at, at times. When the human race drank deeply of rebellion's well in Adam, sin marched into the world with darkness, despair, and death following behind it like a procession of horror. Every human being ever since has suffered 
with a nature that's been corrupted by that sin. Every single one of us. Make no mistake, apart from God's grace, we are all Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, grumbling and tithing our most valuable jewelry to a golden calf. But more than that, we're all pharaohs. We're all Herod. Because of the same anger and paranoia that flooded out of their hearts and into their actions are deep wells of anger and paranoia within us to this same anger, the same paranoia. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by our very nature. We don't need to start leading better lives. We need all new lives altogether to die and be resurrected to a new life is the only thing that will help us. We need the greater exodus that Jesus leads us on. One that frees us from our enslavement to sin and our captivity to rebellion and restores us both body and soul. Thank God he made a way for us through Jesus Christ who leads us through the wilderness of sin's captivity, a greater exodus with a greater covenant that leads us into a greater promised land. Thirty years after God's plan of redemption was threatened by Herod, it seemed to fail once again as God's son was nailed to a cross. But here in the darkest, most horrific moment in all of human history, a note of hope rang out. Motivated by a great love for us, Jesus underwent the ultimate exile, the ultimate captivity on the cross as the judgment we deserve for our sins fell on him, the sinless Christ. But three days later, Christ conquered that sin and he overcame death as he was raised from the dead and launched the great exodus. And that hope-filled note of resurrection reverberates throughout all of creation and throughout all time so that today we can sing, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Today we live in the in-between. That time between Jesus launching the great exodus and the moment that he brings us home to that greater promised land in the new creation. The light of Christmas has broken through into history. But there is still a darkness that lingers, raging against that dawn. Nevertheless, church, take heart. After darkness, light. As St. John tells us in his gospel, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of all people. That light shines in the darkness, and it did not overcome it. For everyone who puts their faith 
and trust in the forgiveness of sin offered to us by Jesus of Nazareth, he promises that all the horror and despair of this life will one day melt away like the night to the morning's rays in the presence of the beauty of God when Jesus returns. And when he returns, he will fulfill yet another prophecy, not from the Old Testament, but from the book of Revelation where he says, where God promises that one day the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away. After darkness, light. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.